They told me I use my mouth good, so I started a podcast. Episode 12 of Iconosass, and I am at an undisclosed location with Eggmaster, Pilot, and Cat T-Shirt Aficionado, Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hey, MK. How's it going? <laughs> going good. Is that is that a good introduction? Are you okay with that? I think that works, yeah. Welcome to the undisclosed location. Thank you. Thank you. So we're just hanging out. We thought it'd be good to do a podcast while we're hanging out and talk about pretty much whatever. I mean, we can. I sometimes don't know what to talk about when it starts recording. So That's okay, we'll figure something out. Well, I think it's, the I audience know. is expecting me to talk about Bitcoin. I think so, so that I won't do. No, maybe we'll leave that for the end. Maybe, maybe. maybe. I mean, you you, you kind of know a little bit about Bitcoin, right? It's kind of the thing I'm known for, but there are other things to discuss that are perhaps interesting. For example, you are a master at cooking eggs. Mm-hmm. So... So I've been told. So you've been... I, I mean, I, I've heard. I've heard wonders. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good topic we can dive into. And this is... I mean, you could even do your own cooking show. That would be if you fun. Wanted to, yeah. But, so the secret to cooking eggs. What is it? The story that most people know is the idea that a chef's hat, which has a hundred folds, represents a hundred ways to cook an egg, and it's considered one of the hardest things to do well. Anyone can cook bad eggs, but cooking eggs well takes a lot of practice. I've been practicing for just over twenty years now. I think I'm getting good at it and uh yeah the, the the tricky thing about eggs is you've got these two proteins the whites and the yolks and they cook at different temperatures and one is far more forgiving than the other like your your yolk has a pretty broad range that it can tolerate but your whites have to be just perfect if you don't cook them enough they're runny and terrible and if you go a fraction over they turn into rubber 
And yeah, so it's, it's kind of tricky to manage those things at the same time. And the more I cook eggs, the more I learn and the better I get at it. You know, in Japan, there's an obsession with that kind of craft mentality to life, right? Where you go into a, a place where they make tamago, which is the Japanese style omelet, which is very finely layered. And they'll, you know, they'll have a chef who just cooks eggs, nothing else. He just cooks this Japanese omelet and he'll be like 95 years old and he'll be the master. And then next to him will be the apprentice who's like 75 years old and is still learning because they started when they're six, but they're not allowed to touch the pan yet by themselves or something <laughs> like this obsession with so like, it's like 20 years of just watching eggs being made and not even touching them. Uh, and then eventually. <laughs> yeah. It's almost as ridiculous as that. It's, it's why, it's why eating in a, in a real Japanese restaurant is amazing. It's because you have people who have literally dedicated their lives to one thing. It's funny, you won't, in Japan, you won't find restaurants that do, you know, sushi and ramen or ramen and yakitori. No such thing. The kind of generic Japanese we have here where they do everything, like hot entrees, sashimi, everything, doesn't really exist. They're very specialized. And the reason they're specialized is because they do one thing, they do it very, very well. So, yeah. So I, I cook a bunch of different cuisines and I, I, I love cooking. It's, it's meditative. It's relaxing. It's a bit creative, a bit science. And I enjoy it tremendously. I've been trying to get better at it for more than 20 years now. And, but if anybody asks me what cuisine I specialize in, the truth is I'm a short order diner cook. <laughs> I love making oh, I, breakfast and brunch. It's, it's my, it's the one thing I, I do best. I, I cook Greek, I cook Italian, I cook French, I cook a bunch of other cuisines, but, but brunch, it's, I think it's the perfect meal to cook for friends mm -hmm. and uh, it's easy. It's accessible. Everybody loves brunch. If you add mimosas, they love it even more. Mm-hmm. It's good any time of day too. Or night. Breakfast for, breakfast for dinner, yeah. Breakfast yeah. after clubbing. Breakfast after. Oh, God, that's the best. Yeah, like yeah. 3, 3 a.m. brunch. Hell, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Literally any time of day. I, I used to, um, a uh, band I used to be the merch girl for, and I was, I was friends with, um, whenever they would come stay with us, we would cook what's called epic breakfast. But the eggs I made were not epic. I, I, I've never been a huge fan of like scrambled eggs and stuff. I've always cooked just like over easy eggs or like sunny side up. I, I like my eggs barely cooked at all, like mm -hmm. just very soft and runny. And yeah, great and eggs enough. are like steak, right? Well done is an abomination. Yes. And get those away from me. Yeah. The scrambled eggs, I think, are probably the, the trickiest to do and i love scrambled eggs so I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to perfect that particular style what's the key to good scrambled eggs oh it's i mean i keep finding new new degrees of and new ideas and how to improve but um some of the some of the important ones are to um, salt and scramble the eggs 15 minutes before you start cooking them 
eggs don't like to be shocked uh, temperature-wise. In Europe, eggs are produced differently, so they're not refrigerated. They're stored on the store shelves, but here I think they, they dunk them in chlorine or something like that, and they take off the outer outer layer. There's a membrane on the outside, and uh, as a result, they have to be refrigerated. And you don't want to take a cold egg and introduce it to a hot pan. They, they don't like that kind of sudden change. So I... I tend to scramble my eggs 15, 20 minutes before I start, let them sit. And one of the things that happens is the salt, it breaks down the protein. And you'll notice the color change from a, a light yellow to a deep orange color. And that's when you know it's good. And then just cooking them really slow and on a low heat and stirring a lot and stopping before you think they're ready because they're going to continue to cook even off the heat for a while, just from their own heat, and mounting them in butter. Butter is a really important ingredient. I believe butter is the French word for better. Okay, it's not, but still, it works. And um, mm. and so whisking some cold butter into warm but not hot scrambled eggs so that they get really, really creamy, silky. Yeah not really secrets these are all like pretty straightforward technique things but you just have to be patient yeah i used to get eggs from the farmer's market and i wouldn't refrigerate them uh it's like they would just be out like that and like yeah you i read that you don't really have to refrigerate them unless you get them refrigerated mm -hmm. i guess like you wouldn't want to leave them out well anyway <laughs> we could talk about eggs <laughs> For the whole podcast, but uh, another thing that's interesting is you travel around a lot. You're what's called location independent. So, what made you decide to do that? Like, how how long ago did you decide that that is kind of what you want to do? That you just wanted to be like, you know what? I just I want to travel. I don't want to have you know a permanent place where it's basically like a glorified storage unit or something. Since you are traveling a lot anyway. Well, I, I, I've been traveling for work for, for many years now. Uh, even before Bitcoin, I was uh, doing work as a public speaker and doing conferences. So I'd be traveling every single month. With Bitcoin, things intensified a bit. By the third year I was in Bitcoin, I was traveling almost continuously, visiting local communities and doing events. And so I got really used to living out of a suitcase and I found that I really enjoyed that kind of lifestyle. And the moment it really clicked for me was I had an apartment in the Midwest uh, at the other undisclosed location, undisclosed location number two. And that's right next to Dick Cheney because he, you know, he's in an undisclosed location. <laughs> he's so. like off the map. It right. just gets all blurry if you look up his address. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Google Maps. Not that I've tried that or anything. Yeah. And I, I was, I had an apartment and I had a conference in Brazil. And maybe three or four weeks later, I had a conference in Buenos Aires. And somehow, because of the way I had booked these, I was going to go back to the Midwest and spend four days in the Midwest. And it was, I think it was like March, maybe April. And I'm, I'm literally lying on the beach, Ipanema Beach, the beach, the most famous beach in the world, uh, in Rio de Janeiro. 
And you know how you can't drink alcohol in public in the United States? They'll bring you caperinhas to the beach while you're sitting in your chair in, <laughs> in Brazil. So I was having a caperinha at noon on Ipanema Beach. What is that, by the way, just to so the audience will know? Uh, okay, let's see. A caperinha is... Um, I, I'm, not a, I'm not really a... <laughs> I'm not really a mixologist. It's a Brazilian drink. It has, I think it's made of cassaça, which is like a sugarcane liqueur, mm. and a bunch of other things. It's a sweet, tropical, fruity beach drink. R refreshing beach drink. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And I figure, okay, so I'm going to travel back. I'm going to go to the Midwest where it is currently snowing so I can be there for four days. I will get back home unpack, do laundry, fill the fridge, empty the fridge, pack, and leave to go to Buenos Aires where it's fall. It's going into summer. It's about to... No, sorry. It's fall. It's going into winter, uh, but it's still warm. And I'm going to go from super hot to freezing cold to super hot again. And why am I doing this? That's an extra flight. It's jet lag. It's travel time. I have enough clothes in my suitcase to just go directly. And so that was the beginning. And I had a conversation with my partner and she agreed to, to this idea. And crazy idea as it was, basically sold... I had already sold most of my belongings, but we both sold all of our belongings and got rid of our apartment and uh, loaded up two suitcases with the plan never to return. That was a year and a half ago. While I have a, a residence for legal purposes, obviously you have to kind of have that. I don't spend any time there or I very rarely spend time there and I travel continuously. I, I treat locations as pit stops. So I'll get things delivered, you know, to refill my consumables part of my suitcase. And other than that, I've now been on the road continuously for a year and a half. I live in Airbnbs and as a digital nomad. Uh, the funny thing is people think, I travel because I'm rich and I'm not, but this lifestyle is actually cheaper for me than my previous lifestyle because I had to travel for work anyway. Mo most, if not all of my flights are business expenses. They're often reimbursed by the conferences I go to. And so if I live in an Airbnb outside the United States, it's usually cheaper than it is to rent an apartment in the United States. It includes gas, electric, water, internet, utilities, parking, you know, all of those things are included in, a, in an Airbnb price and not in addition to rent. And I have half as many flights because I'm not going back. I only do one-way flights moving forward to the next destination. So half the flights, less rent, and I'm no longer, you know, renting an apartment that I intend to live in. I basically have a little storage locker for consumables so I can do a pit stop every now and then. And so I've managed to live a lifestyle that I very much enjoy, but at a lower cost than my previous lifestyle and being quite frugal. And it's really quite um, refreshing and, and liberating to only have 
what fits in two suitcases. Uh, one suitcase is clothes, the other suitcase is, you know, miscellaneous equipment and things that you need to carry around. And I know everything I own. Everything I own is 46 kilos. I know every item that's in every suitcase. I know exactly what I have. I know how many t-shirts I have. I know how many pairs of socks I have. And if I get a new t-shirt, I have to throw one away. It's a very Zen, very limited life with really no attachment to places, but no attachment to stuff also, just people and experiences. Yeah. So over time, you had to become kind of less and less attached. What was that like, I guess, maybe getting getting rid of things, like reducing the stuff that you have? Because when it comes down to it, there are only, you know, like maybe a few necessities everyone needs to get by. And a lot of stuff outside of that is just emotional attachment to things or things we think we need. Yeah, you'd be surprised. And I was surprised as to how little one needs, even considering that I have to carry things like podcasting equipment, cameras, microphones, things like that. Very little actually that I need in terms of clothes, in terms of other belongings and stuff that I carry with me. And over time, as I started traveling, I I continued shedding stuff. I discovered that I didn't need things. And once I'd carried something for a few months through airports and not used it, I was like, okay, that's it. That's going. I'm not carrying that through another airport. And so my suitcase actually started getting lighter through my travels and I my lifestyle started getting simpler and simpler. But at first, two things happen. One is you develop the sense that things give you security. That if you have things, then you can handle difficult conditions because you have these things that you can use. And so things become almost this safety blanket, right? This barrier to the world. And many people feel about their home that way too. Of course, this is an illusion. Attachment to things reduces your freedom, reduces your flexibility, and the things end up owning you and tying you down. At least that's how I feel now. And I... I, I knew that, I heard that, I even said that, but until I lived it, I didn't really, really understand it. I feel much freer now that I have much, much less stuff and stuff doesn't weigh on me anymore. But the other thing you have is this illusion that things are worth what you paid for them. Mm. And you have to get rid of that illusion because they're not. Nobody else is willing to pay that amount of money that you paid to get the things in the first place. And maybe you've even accumulated some emotional value that you want to be compensated for. And nobody's going to pay that either. For a very big chunk of my belongings, I couldn't even sell it to the garage sale level at $2 per item. I just donated it to various charitable causes and people I knew who needed various things posted a lot of it on on Craigslist and said, just come pick it up, most items free, and had people traipsing through my apartment picking, picking things up until there was nothing left. Yeah, so if you focus too much on how much you paid for an item in the beginning, you'll feel this incredible sense of loss, like you're losing all of this money. But again, it's an illusion. Mm-hmm. Um Things cost money to maintain and to store and to uh, 
hold and to keep and to transport and move from apartment to apartment. And you never count all of that against them. But once you're rid of all of that, you don't have to pay any of that again. Again, you, you, you end up saving money. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean... I'm realizing I had to do a complete overhaul of my thinking on this too, because I've moved a lot in my life, in my adult life, from like a lot of, you know, places within the town that I grew up and then a lot of like bigger moves than that. And it was always so important for me to maintain all of my stuff. And like during certain periods of my life where other things were unstable, I felt that my stuff did give me that kind of stability mm -hmm. of like okay, well, everything else is falling apart around me, but at least I have my stuff, <laughs> you know, at least I can look at it. Like, what Like what am I going to do with a lot of it, though? I mean, it has like a Make certain, a fort? Make a in fort your of my stuff. And hide like, in there. And, and yeah, and hide in there with, you know, again, things that are sentimental Thir but don't really have... Thursday fort. crying time in your living room fort. <laughs> Thursday crying time in my fort. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! It I does mean, feel good, yeah. But uh, like you, you can do that in I your did. car. <laughs> I exactly. Well, and that's kind of what I'm aiming for now. Like, I, I mean, like I did this move across the country from Pensacola to San Diego. I brought so much shit. It was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It was so 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 stupid. But I was so uncertain of things at the time. Like my stuff was really all that I felt like I had. You know, and I was going to take it all with me. And it was very hard for me to let go of a lot of stuff like that. I still ended up losing. I, I lost arguably the most important stuff as I was moving in, which was like a very small suitcase filled with totally sentimental things like just notebooks that I'd had for years and just like very important things that had no value to anyone else but me, but but a very high emotional value. And it was a very shocking kind of thing for me. And that made me even more paranoid for a while about I have to hold on to this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then like things kept happening. And, you know, eventually I had to put all of that shit into storage and move back across the country again with even less stuff. And I'm kind of basically making my way back there and uh the plan was put my stuff in storage and it'll be there for a couple months and then i'll go back to it and i'll still have my stuff and i'll move into another place well like plans change and things don't always work out and that storage unit's just been sitting there for way too long now and it's cost me a bunch of money and the plan was to get back to it and downsize it you know maybe put it into a smaller storage unit or move it into a house or something but the more i think about it the more i'm just like I haven't needed any of that stuff mm -hmm. in so long. Like I don't even know. I, I have like a recollection of what should be in there and what I think is still in there. But um, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to get there and I'm going to be like, I didn't even remember this was in here. I didn't remember it because I didn't need it. And I have all the stuff I need fitting in my car right now. And even probably still stuff that I don't need. I mean, you probably, you didn't start your trip with like two suitcases of stuff. I'm sure you had like much more you were, or did everything fit but like barely into two suitcases or you were starting with so i started i started with 46 kilos and two suitcases because the international checked luggage is 223 kilogram suitcases or 100 pounds total um that and so i had an upper limit i weigh my luggage i always know exactly how much it weighs everything goes in the same place and my suitcase is always accurate to within couple of ounces of where it should be but 
started with two and then downsized from there. But I had already gone through that process, getting rid of apartment, getting rid of cars, getting rid of all of that and and getting rid of a lot of stuff. And then very, very carefully thinking about if you only have two suitcases, how do you pack them? What do you in fact need? And the final pack ended up being surprisingly different than what I had originally expected. It's almost like packing for a long-term camping trip, but with a you do need a bit more in terms of safety and survival gear. I know, I mean, I'm probably weird in that way, but I carry a smoke alarm because when you live at 40 different Airbnbs over a year, you can't trust the landlords to take care of that stuff and whether it's working or not. And I've been in, you know, weird places in the world where fire safety is really appalling. So I have a smoke alarm. I I have to have a medicine cabinet and a first aid kit because, you know, if I, if something happens when I'm in Vietnam, how the hell am I going to explain to a pharmacist or a doctor what's going on? It, It gets very, very difficult. So I need to be able to handle, you know, small things to medium things. And, you know, packing for four seasons from swim gear to uh, strong waterproof hiking boots. Uh, you have to handle different weather conditions. Um, having a rain poncho in your backpack in case you get stranded somewhere in a downpour, and, you know, so you don't get exposure. Little things like that. Um, a knife, a lighter. I also carry a meat thermometer (laughs) because I like cooking. So I figured of all the things I need in the kitchen, there's only two things I really need that I can't, that I need to cook. If I have the basics of a stove and some pots, a chef's knife, uh, a proper, well-sharpened 10 inch bushed off chef's knife and an instant read thermometer. And with that, I can pretty much handle any kitchen, you know, when you meet people and they, they buy all of this specialist stuff for a kitchen and they can't actually use it. I, I always find that amusing because all you really need is a knife. And <laughs> I use the shit out of my KitchenAid and Ninja, though. Oh, yeah. I yeah. miss those things. I really miss them. Enough to Weirdly, carry them. But not enough to carry it. Yeah, exactly. Like, like I'm going to get, again, they're hopefully in my storage unit. Maybe not. Maybe not. I don't know. But, um,. <laughs> I'm thinking of like, yeah, I'm not going to get those out of there. I went I'm, back what to am I do with that. Like I'm, you know, I can always rebuy them. Exactly. Like I got a super good deal on the Ninja anyway, and they're the, even cheaper now. Like <laughs> the money you spend on the storage unit itself every month could rebuy yes. all of the stuff in there, right? Yeah. And yeah. I, I went back to the storage unit that I had from before I left California. And I had one day to handle it, but I'd already been traveling for a while. I'd already minimized my life. I'd already gotten over the emotional attachment, the fear of loss, the, the monetary illusion, all of that. I'd, I'd gone through that and I'd come out the other side with a sense of clarity. I show up at the storage unit with a rented U-Haul truck everything down into the truck. I took a box of photos and documents to a place to get them digitized and scanned. 
everything else went directly to a homeless shelter and the Salvation Army um, and got donated everything else. I looked through it briefly. And I was like, oh, it was nice to have owned this. Time for someone else to take care of it. Oh, it was nice to have this. I'm sure somebody else will really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And other than the photos that I digitized, everything else I gave away and closed down that thing, returned the truck, got on a plane and kept traveling and um, haven't missed a single thing from that stash. Yeah. 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 I'm hoping to get there and kind of do the same thing with mine because the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, yeah, why put it into a smaller storage unit or like try to like they again, like. There's really not much in there that I can think that I miss. I mean, I I had my biggest thing is I have a hard time getting rid of books, you know, Mm -hmm. like a very hard time getting rid of books. And then I'm thinking of all the books that have been stored in there. I'm like, well, it's not like I needed any of them to cross reference (laughs) at any point since I haven't had them. And I can get pretty much again, I could buy them all Mm -hmm. again if I'm really missing them. You know, I can get them on Kindle or whatever. So and I, I do have some vinyl out there too. And uh, I, I'm going to try to maybe re-gift some of those or, you know, give them to people I think are going to use them. But yeah, hopefully when I get in there, which will be uh, maybe sometime towards the end of next month, I basically want to have like a storage unit sale party, like come take stuff you want. You can pay me for it if you want. Yeah. Take it all out. And then whatever's left, I'm gonna donate and now i'm i'm gonna have to really like strictly enforce this because i have a car so i mean i have the excuse of like if there's room in the car which there's a little bit of room left that i could Mm. put more shit but it's like i'm like no i don't want to fall into that trap of like well i have a car so i have an excuse to take more shit with me Were, were there any kind of techniques that you were able to use to get through some of those emotional barriers or was it just kind of like sheer willpower of like you you know that you have to cut those attachments to it and so i just kept reminding myself that it's an illusion and it became as easier as i traveled and i didn't miss any of that but you know the the problem is if there's room in your car then you need a car and yeah and you also have to think about the weight attachment puts on on your psyche it's like Mm -hmm. there's room in your car is there room in your psyche for clutter and i was full so i was like no i'm not keeping any of this it's it it takes a while to get used to this you know we're, we're extremely privileged to live in a world where you can have things in the cloud you know like like you said books right I got the very first Kindle when Amazon launched it. I've had 15 Kindles since every single model until it stops working and I buy a new one. I read voraciously and books were a huge part of my life. And I had stacks and stacks and stacks of them. And I buy new books all the time and I take books to the library and donate them almost every couple of weeks. And now I have a, a really nice Kindle collection. I don't use physical books at all. And the the thing that changed is that I now read about four times more than I did when I had physical books. Because the Kindle gives me the freedom to read 
more books in more places, read books simultaneously, you know, a couple, sometimes I'm reading two or three books at the same time and I read more. So I haven't lost out. The thing I loved was not books. The thing I loved was words. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting all of the words with none of the weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I actually were, was able to increase the amount of words I read by having fewer books. Um, so if stuff isn't giving you enjoyment on a regular basis, holding on to it just prevents it from giving enjoyment to someone else. And you pay a price for that. You pay a price that you can't enjoy other things because you're too busy carrying, transporting, paying, maintaining, um, worrying about the security of, you know, all of that stuff. You know, photos can live in a digital format and people and experiences are not digitizable. So yeah, you don't re- really need anything. It's fairly easy. I mean, if you can travel and if you have the freedom to travel, which in itself is something that not many people do have. I remember talking to some friends in Vietnam about traveling and one of my friends had had been trying to visit the United States or Europe for almost 12 years and could not get a tourist visa, just could not get a tourist visa. Someone who by even Western standards, is employed, successful, professional, with significant family and financial ties to their home country, not likely to, you know, become uh, an unlawful immigrant or whatever, and yet could not get a visa at all. And I have a British passport, which I think is the best one in the world plus an American passport, which means I can go to 165 countries without anything and just show up and stay for 90 days on a tourist visa. That's a huge privilege, but you know, I try to use that <laughs> since I have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can do it. I'm, I'm trying to visit all of them. You know, people ask me, what's your favorite country? It's always the next one. You know, that was going to be one of my questions. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, yeah, but the next one that that's, yeah. I mean, because I like new experiences. I I've, I've been to 46 countries and that's like a top five list so far. (laughs) uh, I don't know. It's again, the next five I need to visit. Yeah. Uh, The world is a huge place and it's full of amazing things and i'm don't plan to stop you know 46 countries is is not enough it's 150 countries short of the total Mm -hmm. it's probably not safe to go to a, a handful of countries but actually the ones i can safely go to is a huge list and i put pins on a map and there's still very big empty areas that I need to work on. So, mm-hmm. and I, I don't plan on settling down. Honestly, I think it's easy to settle down. It's hard to settle up. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's or saddle up, I guess. Um, it's hard to, it takes a long time to gradually disconnect all of the attachments to physical location and figure out all of the little intricacies of life in such a way that you can do what you need to do anywhere. 
from simple things like mail and banking, you know, Bitcoin helps with that to, to where do you, where do you go to see a, a doctor for, for checkups or dentists or things like that. But, you know, there's ways to do it and mm -hmm. eventually get used to that kind of lifestyle. Now I've been doing it for, as I said, almost just over a year and a half and I love it. I'm going to keep doing it for as long as I can. Hell Yeah. Yeah, I'm basically starting with the road trip. Yeah, <laughs> I would that's a I'd great love to start. travel around the world. Um and I've always loved traveling. Anytime I've had the opportunity to travel, I've taken it. And it's something that yeah, you meet interesting people, you have experiences that you just can't have staying in your hometown or staying in one city for a long time. Um and everyone has different levels of what's comfortable for them, you know, what's stable for them. But I kind of had to come to a realization that I was so deeply uncomfortable being stuck in one area, mm -hmm. regardless of where it was at. Like if I ever right. feel that I'm in an area too long, I do start feeling confined and I get a little stir crazy and it's like, I, I need to travel. And then I started looking at, uh, cause I was supposed to move out of my last place and I started looking at places and I hate, kind of apartment hunting. I hate the whole process of that, doing the applications and then having to sign a lease agreement. I hate signing lease agreements because I, mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen in a year or even six months or even less than that. And usually the minimums for those are like six months and they charge you a premium. So it's just kind of like, I hate paying rent a lot. I hate signing a lease a lot. I hate being confined to one place. I live very simply as it is, and I just kind of had to realistically look at my expenses and stuff. It's like I wasn't making that much money anyway, and rent was a huge part of that. So it's like, well, if I can eliminate that bill, simplify my other ones, just live as frugally as possible, which I already live pretty simply, then yeah, this seems totally doable. So I was like, so why am I not doing this? And mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I just had to kind of critically examine that. It's like, you know, what am I... What What is keeping me in this one place? And thankfully, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of ties to any one place. You know, I don't have kids or anything or a spouse or whatever. So I am in that unique position to be able to kind of travel. So I was like, it's what I've always wanted to do. So I'm just going to hit the road and go with it. You know, I, I'm really looking forward to it. And I, I kind of, I'm kind of questioning. I was like, am I, you know, going to want to stop this once I get started? Because the one of the goals was I was like, oh, well, I'll use the road trip as a way to kind of find another place that I would want to live. And it's like, what if I don't want to live in a place? What, <laughs> what if, if you I already don't? found it? Or what if what if it's my car? Or yeah. what if it's not, you know, maybe I can even eventually get rid of my car. Yeah, live out of suitcases and fly around in places. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm basically, I've never just like completely winged it like this. At any time in my life. And it's a little scary, but it's also, like you said, really liberating. I'm not going to be stuck in one place. And I'm okay with taking that risk. I'm, you know, I'm excited about it. Yeah. I mean, there's a very, usually a very limited period of time in your life that you can take significant risks. And if you have that kind of freedom, don't wait. Like this idea of, Oh, I'll, I, I love traveling. I'll travel when I retire. No, you won't. You'll die first. <laughs> Probably yeah. of overwork. 
And I, I know that not everyone can do it. And, you know, people are stuck in difficult situations. But if you're still young, if your life hasn't got stuck in a rut, if you don't, don't try and build a life of postponed choices, you know, do the things you, you want to do now and, and build your life around that rather than following a path that puts you in a rut. Yeah. And none of that stuff's guaranteed, you know, even if you have a decent job with benefits and stuff like that, with how quickly I think the world is changing, especially considering where technology is going and stuff. I mean, none of that stuff's guaranteed. Mm -mm. Like you, it may seem secure now, but things are changing so fast that, I mean, you might be replaced like you, or something else could happen or whatever, you know, business model your business is running under might become totally obsolete. And then what? And then what? Yeah. yeah then you have to live in your car. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, I figure. <laughs> done it. I'm already good with roughing it. Like, right. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, I, it's just crazy because I've had, I mean, most of my jobs have not been super well-paying jobs and none of them have had benefits. I've never had a regular job with benefits anyway, and I've always kind of busted my ass, and I've never felt like I was going anywhere. I always felt like I was pretty stagnant. And a lot of that is the kind of trappings of being stuck in a place. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, if I'm going to be struggling anyway, I might as well be having a good time. And, <laughs> you know, I and right now, like, my health has gotten better. I'm thankfully, like, able-bodied. I'm able to, you know, kind of be in uncomfortable places, and it's not as much of a risk. And, I, yeah, I don't know when I'm going to die. Like, I, I, fuck, like, what if I die tomorrow? Or what if I die in another year? Do I really – or – yeah, I mean, what if I never, ever do this and end up getting older and then on my deathbed, I would definitely regret not doing something like this. And that's one of the biggest No regrets living, with, right? Yeah, no yeah. no regrets living, yeah. And yeah, I mean, that is when they've done studies and like interviews with people who, you know, are elderly and like closer to death. I mean, regret is a huge... Nobody regrets not settling down enough. Yeah. I traveled too much in my youth. Yeah. Saw too many things. <laughs> I wish I'd settled down sooner mm -hmm. and really explored, mm -hmm. you know, pleasant Forestville with all of its beautiful suburban streets. Yeah. Nobody yeah. ever says that. <laughs> I mean, and like, you know, nothing wrong with people who like prefer that kind of lifestyle. I mean, that that's fine. That's, you know, traveling a lot is not for everyone or being location independent isn't for everyone. I feel like it is for me. I feel like it's, it's you know, being busting my ass so I can eventually get to a gated community, which basically just looks like a nicer form of prison doesn't really sound fun Appealing. to me. Yeah. I don't want to be under the tyranny of like a what like a homeowners association or some crap like that thankfully i never bought into the whole idea that i needed to buy a house anyway yeah. <laughs> so like i i don't i've already worked to kind of you know undo a lot of this weird social conditioning that everyone ha gets when they grow up in the u.s it's like there's a very narrow view of what's acceptable and what's okay to do and what a successful you know path is there's a but it I hasn't worked for people this um, this kind of philosophy of living isn't new, of course. You know, Henry David Thoreau, Jack Kerouac, 
a whole bunch of people figuring out the their simple joys in life in not following a, a prescribed path and doing things that other people think are weird. I think what's different today is that a lot of those early pioneers also shun technology, whereas I think for younger people, the possibility of using technology to gain that freedom of location rather than shunning it um, and being able to, you know, have some kind of income through a job that relies on the internet rather than a physical location means that it's now a more accessible lifestyle for a lot of people. And this is happening at the same time that the previous lifestyle of a career or secure job, uh, 401k and IRA is, is revealing itself to be a cruel joke. Right? Yeah. And so I think more and more younger people are simply opting out. One of my favorite authors is, um, Cory Doctorow, who writes mm-hmm. young, young adult and um, sci-fi, techno, utopia, techno, dystopia novels. His latest one, which I absolutely loved, was Walk Away. And it's about people opting out of society, using exit as their form of power instead of voice, ah, yes. refusing to participate, opting out and walking away. And saying, you can have it. You can keep the 401k, the mortgage, the steady job, the paycheck, the nine to five, the telecommuting, the commuting in a car, all, or you can keep all of that and just striking out and doing something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I've also noticed whenever I've had a, you know, any kind of regular job, I've always had hobbies and things I've done outside of that or like other types of side hustles and stuff just because I, I mean, I'm going to be doing weird stuff anyway. And I, I kind of just need more, I don't, I don't know if it's like stimulation or like what it is. Like I, I just need to be doing other things. Like I, I, again, same as getting st- stuck living in one place, getting stuck in one job, I get kind of stir crazy. Um, so, I mean, I've been very comfortable living in like regular job plus side hustle land for a while and now what I'm doing is transitioning into like only side hustles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah, the gig uh, economy. The gig economy, right. yeah. And uh, we'll see how that kind of works out. But yeah, again, I mean, I can live on very little and you do kind of realize, especially if you, you haven't had like a lot in life, you, you realize how little you really need. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not everyone, I, in some ways, I mean, while I've, gone through I've gone through really rough periods you know of my life and in a way I feel that, that really helped me prepare for this because it's like I got very used to living without certain comforts that I think a lot of people kind of take for granted too mm-hmm. um, and it's amazing how much you can eliminate and like whittle down when you realize you know, you're gonna survive on some bare minimum shit sometimes and and then your, your body is very adaptive yeah yeah, your body and your mind and all of that's very adaptive. So, so yeah, it's great. And it's like, you know, I'm not starting this road trip with a lot of stuff. It's not like I, you know, struck gold or Bitcoin or something and like made a bunch of money and now I'm going to blow it all. It's like, no, I'm starting realizing that like, holy shit, I'm barely making any money as it is. Like, yeah. why am I 
you know, why do I feel stuck? And it's like, well, I feel stuck because I'm making myself feel stuck. And I can undo that. Like, if I'm going to be roughing it anyway, I want to be roughing it in a funner way. I want to be having cooler experiences and catching up with people. And uh, also, I'm going to be creating art along the way, too, which is uh, I've really been happy with Patreon, which you're also on, too. Um, I feel like Patreon has really liberated me to create stuff to do stuff that I was already going to be doing no matter what, no matter if people were going to be paying me for it. But now I can connect with people who really are getting something valuable out of what I'm creating. Yeah. For me, it was about not having to chase commercial gigs and all of the negotiation and compromise that that involves. It's always difficult and you end up twisting yourself into a pretzel to satisfy some corporate clients for nothing. Right. But you know, I, I got into Bitcoin back in 2012 and I've been traveling for that job. It's not really a job. It's for that mission, <laughs> which is going around and trying to teach people and explain to people what this is and what's going on with, with this technology. And in order to be able to do community events for free, and I do those in almost every city that I go to, I try to do as many of those as possible. I have to, I had to then do commercial events. So one commercial event could pay for six free community events over the next three months. And, you know, people automatically assume that I have a lot of Bitcoin because I got in early. But the truth is my highest, my highest earning year in my lifetime was 2010 when I was working a a job as a partner in in a research firm two years before I discovered Bitcoin. And yeah, so I had to do all of these gigs in order to make ends meet and be able to continue to do what is satisfying to me, which is these community events. And so I'm still not earning as much as I did back then, but I'm living more frugally and more flexibly. And so my uh, net happiness index is a hell of a lot higher than my net worth. (laughs) I've gotten freedom instead. And I would not switch it for a moment to go back to 2010 when I had more money, but I wasn't happy at all. Right, right. Well, and with Bitcoin and and other tech too, you have these communities spread out all around the world and they all have this kind of of like, specific common interest and that's really awesome so yeah you can travel around and find people that share those same kinds of interests with you and Mm. it's also a lot more affordable to live in other places outside the u.s too i mean you know like i'll I'll mostly be like couch surfing and stuff to keep my expenses low but i mean gas is still expensive um you know and uh, maybe occasionally i might have to do like an airbnb or something like that that's going to be more costly but yeah there are a lot of places around the world that it's a lot more affordable to even in the u.s yeah even in the u.s but certainly around the world the the standards of living the cost of living is is much lower and that that means that if you can earn online and then spend in a less expensive location um you have a lot more flexibility Mm-hmm. I think more and more people are trying to take advantage of that. Of course, borders make it difficult for most. But borders are such a spook. Mm-hmm. 
Very big scam. Yeah. Yeah. What are some countries that you found um, like have that kind of have like a, a awesome kind of standard of living for the price? Again, like you're very frugal and you don't need that much, but like ha- have like a good balance of standard of living for however much it's costing. And you stand out. I mean, Central and South America are amazing. And I've visited a handful of countries in those areas and I'd love to visit more. I spent quite a bit of time in Buenos Aires, in Peru, um, in Central America, uh, Mexico, Costa Rica, a bunch of other places I've visited from time to time. Really a lot of opportunities to live in very nice surroundings, very nice climates, decent internet, low crime rates, and fantastically low cost of living. Southern Europe is like that too. I mean, you know, Greece is economically devastated, which makes it very, very inexpensive to uh, to live there. I mean, the cost of living is, is very low now in many places. Southeast Asia is a lot of amazing places in Southeast Asia. Like, I'm, you know, I love Tokyo and Hong Kong, but I can't really afford to live there for very long. So I might go there for a few days, but I'm not going to stay there. But for example, I stayed for a month in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, which, you know, is the neighbor to the north of uh, Singapore. And Singapore used to be part of Malaysia in the very early days. And... You know, I would characterize Kuala Lumpur as 80% of the quality of living of Singapore at 20% of the cost. It's <laughs> like wow. winner yeah. for me. And yeah. it's a major airline hub. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, if you're flexible, you, you, you can find a lot of different opportunities around the world or even just around the US. There's a lot of slightly smaller cities, you know, not the big five, where um, you can live less expensively as long as you're not trying to find a job there mm-hmm. if you can work online and live somewhere where maybe there aren't that many jobs but that also means that there's a lot less um, cost of living housing for example is a big deal here yeah so being flexible is the key and you, traveling has its hard times it's difficult times um, you know you travel for 18 hours and you arrive at midnight at this location and your your hotel reservation is screwed up and you don't have a room like 11 30 at night in a foreign language trying to negotiate for somewhere to stay and you just discovered that the um, conference of the head of states of the region is happening that day in that city so all of the hotels are booked and, you know that's happened to me like pretty much exactly like that. They were having a regional head of state meeting and all of the hotels were booked. All of the Airbnbs were booked. And I tried to find accommodation of foreign language at 1130. I'm like, okay, so maybe tonight I'm going to sleep at the train station. That's going to be an interesting experience. And tomorrow I'll figure it out and just have yeah. to be flexible. And sometimes you get stranded at airports and travel goes badly. And like, that's part of it. That's the small price you pay. Mm-hmm. for the great degree of flexibility. And if you just let let that, you know, wash over you and brush it off and move on, uh, you can actually make a pretty good life with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I um, 
you know, I, I'm comfortable sleeping in my car <laughs> if I have to. Uh, in fact, sleeping in my car, the various times I have has been a lot more pleasant than some of the places I've lived in and yes. made dealing with like meth head neighbors and stuff. You know, yes. like it's been more quiet and safer. Oh yeah, in a my quiet car. Toyota back seat without any yeah. futon mattress. Yeah, or... with no, no futon or no like crazy neighbors uh, you know, punching car windows out and like doing whatever crazy shit they're doing. So yeah, I mean you know, like sometimes maybe you sacrifice a little bit of comfort, but I, I'd rather do that than sacrifice the experiences I could have and, you know, the the autonomy that, you know, that kind of lifestyle has. So, yeah, I think um, in the very near future, probably only 10 years or less. We're going to have autonomous cars with like level five autonomy where they can pretty much go anywhere. And I love this idea of being able to get in your car, which doesn't have any of the steering wheel bullshit stuff that gets in the way. It's just basically an empty cabin, plop down the bed, tell the car to drive to Cincinnati, go to sleep, wake up in Cincinnati, <sighs> hang out for the day. While it's charging, do your thing. Get back in your car. Tell it to go to Philadelphia. Wake up in Philadelphia. <laughs> it's like, let it take you overnight. Like, sleeper cars, I think, are going to be a fantastic innovation. Oh, God. That way you're yes. actually making progress in your travel while you're sleeping. I, for one, welcome our car robot overlords. Uh-huh. So you do, um, you're a pilot also. Um, do you think we're ever going to, are we going to get to that, like, fly, flying cars? Flying, fly, no, flying planes, like self-flying planes. Is that even? Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to see that probably not fixed wing aircraft, but multi-rotor craft, kind of like quadcopters scaled up or mm, okay. octocopters scaled up. Um, Airbus is actually working on a massive project like that with essentially autonomous aerial taxis, but it's never going to be, uh, well, never say never. It's not going to be cost and effect, cost effective compared to a car for a very long time because, mm -hmm. you know, the energy requirements to, to lift weights are, are orders of magnitude greater. So you know, that means it's expensive for, for most people. And, you know, as a pilot, flying is expensive. It's an expensive hobby. I have to save a lot of money just so I can get one or two flights a month in. And it's pretty much the only thing I, I, I spend a bit more money on. People are sometimes surprised by both how cheap it can be and how expensive it adds up to be. But, for example, I rent mostly Cessnas. I don't own a plane, by the way, if that wasn't clear. I rent them. Um, just like you rent a car. And the type of plane I fly is like um, a two or four seater that's half the width of a car. The cabin inside is half as wide as a car. So you're like cramped against the other person who's sitting next to you. And, you know, weighs about half, of, half the weight of a car too. You know, people are always amused when they see me parking an aircraft by myself just pushing it back into a hangar it's quite easy to do these <laughs> things are designed to be light it's really tiny tiny planes and cessna is a 
very popular model. And the 172 Cessna is probably like the Toyota Corolla of rental aircraft. Mm. Pretty much any country in the world you go to, um, you go to a general aviation airport somewhere, you, you'll find someone who's renting a Cessna 172. So that's the the type of aircraft I specialized in. You have to learn a specific type of aircraft to fly. And it, it, it takes a bit to transition to another type. So I specialized in the most common rental fleet aircraft so that I could easily find them and rent them and instantly be familiar with the operation of that aircraft. And so as I travel, I go to places and I rent planes and I fly. It costs maybe like $160, $170 an hour on average. Some places a bit cheaper, some places a bit more expensive. That includes the fuel. Mm-hmm. And that's only for the hour that the propeller is actually spinning. Meaning oh. that if you take it for a three-day trip and you go an hour's distance and then come back, you pay $300 for two hours that it was actually flying, not the time you took the plane, but the time it was actually flying. So it can be not an outrageous amount if you wanted to get from a mid-sized city to a mid-sized city with four friends and one of you is a pilot and you want to do a round trip. It's actually cheaper to pile the four of you in a small plane and, and fly there private than it is to fly commercial. But if you want to learn how to fly and that requires, you know, 75 to 100 hours of training where you're also paying the teacher and renting the plane, that gets expensive. It took me many, many years before I finally managed to save up enough money to do it all in one go. Um, I had lots of stops and starts where I'd run out of time or money or both. Mm-hmm. And then finally in 2015, I've completed my training, got my private pilot's license. Now I'm continuing uh, to train in other things, certifications and ratings. It's something I absolutely love to do. It's it's an all-engrossing kind of activity. It's, again, highly scientific, which I love. You know, Mm -hmm. you need to understand physics. You need to understand what the aircraft is actually doing. It has a level of detail. You have to be meticulous. You have to be focused and uh, detail-oriented. But at the same time, it has a physicality to it. You are moving a piece of metal 150 miles an hour through the sky, and no one can help you if something goes wrong. So you have to be confident and rely on yourself to handle whatever might happen while you're doing that. Um, And all of that makes it something amazing for me so i absolutely love doing it yeah it sounds like such a rush and then also just like this extra level almost of autonomy like it's great to be able to like get into a car and drive anywhere Mm -hmm. i want to drive that's cool and all but like once you're able to just kind of get completely out of them you're like flying just seems so otherworldly i've always loved traveling in planes i've never considered learning how to fly one although i you know, I think it would be really interesting, you know, and all that. But I mean, that's just seems like another level of kind of awesomeness. And it is. It's a very different perspective from up there. At times, it is a bit scary. I was terrified during my first solo, which, of course, every pilot is. The first time yeah. you get into the plane, and usually it involves 
flying around a bit with your instructor and then they say, okay, you're ready and you land and you go to the parking area and the instructor steps out and then you turn around and you take off by yourself for the first time. And then you're like, okay, this is it. If anything happens now, I'm the only one who can fix it. And I have to figure out how to get this thing back on the ground. And then you do it three times. They, they want you to do it three times, like three landings, three takeoffs. Um, generally in aviation, a, a good rule of thumb is to try to keep the number of landings equal to the number of takeoffs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you have to do three so that like, okay, one is potentially just good luck and accidents two is maybe really good but if you can land three times in a row that probably means you know how to land an aircraft so that at that point you get the uh, the validation of being able to do it by yourself and then it, it opens up a whole new set of possibilities I remember the first time I went up with a friend without an instructor, just solo and did a long distance trip, like flying at high altitudes and for several hours and, you know, dealing with weather and unexpected contingencies and strange radio messages and things like that. And it's absolutely exhilarating. Lately, I've had the opportunity to fly in a, in a few of the countries I've visited. And I've had some really strange experiences in some of the countries even though aviation is in English, all of the communication is in English at international and commercial airports. If you stray outside of the international airports and you go into the countryside, you start running into air traffic controllers and pilots who lapse into their local language and perhaps even can't speak English very well. So, um, you know, sometimes that's a bit disconcerting. When I fly in places where I don't speak the language, I usually have a, a safety pilot, which is basically you hire someone to sit in the right seat to do nothing. Their job is to be there just in case they're needed, be familiar with the area and be able to handle communications if somebody starts speaking to you and, I don't know, check. I was in Prague and I went flying with a rental plane and... uh we started the flight and uh, the, my safety pilot was communicating with the tower. And I was like, wow, that's great. They're, they're speaking Czech and I can't understand anything. My safety pilot said, no, that was English. Oh, really? That accent was so thick. I thought you were speaking Czech. <laughs> I didn't understand. <laughs> Good thing I have you here, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's... Uh, it's it's really fun to see different different countries and get to see them from a perspective that you don't usually get. Another time recently, I was flying in Cape Town, South Africa, and flying over the southern tip of Africa. And the uh, southern beaches there are the most shark-infested waters on the planet. And you can actually see great white sharks from the plane. What? swimming in the water below they have patrols with aircraft to notify swimmers um you know people with binoculars but you can see them without binoculars you can see these little white shapes swimming in in the in the ocean below it was like okay if we're gonna crash let's try to hit land yeah and not go in that water <laughs> 
don't let them go. Yeah, and I mean, there's always an added complexity of making sure you have the chemicals for the chemtrails in your planes, right? We load those at every airport because they're specific. So, um, like, if you go to certain countries, they want some of them are, are more focused on mind control. Some of them are more with the political chemicals. Some of them are trying to turn you gay. So then we load the gay, the gay canisters. Really yeah. out of control. Uh, and sometimes it's all of the above. So you have to load <laughs> three canisters, one for gays, one for politics, and one for mind control. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's just part of aviation. Uh, you know, if you want to fly the skies, you have to do the chemtrails. Um, that's, that's what I've heard. That's what the, the documentaries have told me. I've actually had one of the places where I rented the plane, they had installed um, a dummy switch and put a label underneath that said chemtrails, which I thought was really funny. (laughs) Also, uh, one of the planes I rented had a panic button, which was a big red button that said, in case of emergency, press here. It didn't do anything. It wasn't actually connected <laughs> to anything. It's, but it's emotionally satisfying to panicking. know. You feel like you're doing something. You can smash that button down. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I've tried to fly a helicopter as oh, well. Yeah. I took I took one lesson with those, and one day I'd like to try and master that particular skill. It is devilishly hard. Yeah, I've heard that it's really difficult. Yeah. I mean, obviously flying a plane is super fucking difficult, but... Flying a plane is not difficult, honestly. It really, really isn't. Um, And in fact, if you ever do a discovery flight, most flight schools around the world do this thing called a discovery flight. So for about 120 bucks, you get 45 minutes in the air and you'll get a lesson just so that you can see what it's like to learn how to fly a plane. You'll get a proper lesson. And it's always surprising to new students who try the discovery flight that you line up, you get into the plane and the the instructor tells you how to drive it down the taxiway and turn around and line up at the runway. And then tells you how you're going to take off. They're like, excuse me, what, I'm going to take off? Yes, yes, you heard me right. You're going to take off. And they're like, okay, so what do I do? And they tell you what to do, and you 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 take off. And then you get to altitude, and they'll say, okay, so now we're going to try doing some turns and going up and down. And, and they tell you what to do, and you do it. And then at some point, you notice they're not touching the controls. And you're like, holy shit, I'm actually flying this plane. Like, yep, you actually, you've been flying it for the last 15 minutes. I haven't touched the controls once. Like, whoa, really? Um, planes really want to fly. And <laughs> if you are not doing anything to them, they tend to continue to fly in the same direction and speed. And just like a car, if you let go of the steering wheel, you know, it's funny if you look at movies of kids pretending to drive a car, their idea of driving a car is... Uh, twisting the wheel left and right really, really quickly. Um, and a plane is like that. Actually, most of the time, you're not touching anything. You only touch things when you're changing lanes. <laughs> and then the rest of the time, it just kind of, if it's properly stabilized, it will just fly. That is not what helicopters are like. Mm-hmm. So y- you hoop, right? So a lot yes. of what you do is 
balancing equilibrium mm-hmm. um, or balancing a staff or wand or something like that. Mm-hmm. People have described flying a helicopter as balancing something really heavy on a pencil tip. They're not inherently stable. They're always out of equilibrium. So, and the the problem is that each one of the controls affects all of the others. So, if you pull up on the collective and the helicopter tries to climb, that makes it also rotate because it has more torque energy. So, you have to counter-rotate while you're doing that. But if you do that, it's going to tip forward. So, you have to also pull a bit back. And then that causes it to drop a bit. So, you have to add more collective, which causes it to rotate. So, it's like all three independent motions feed into each other. So, you're constantly trying to balance it out. And yeah, that's, it's really difficult. Um, hovering, of course, is the hardest thing. But I mean, even just the simple getting it off the ground and moving, uh, devilishly difficult. Apparently, after wow. about um, six or seven hours, something clicks and you start doing it without knowing how you're doing it. Kind of like riding a bicycle. You develop the muscle memory. But uh, yeah, much, much harder than a, than a plane. Uh, most people were surprised. In fact, planes... I would say about 25% of the training is how to make the plane move through the air. And then the other 75% to your private pilot's licenses. And now what to do when shit hits fan. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, great. So you know how to move the plane through the air. What do you do when the engine goes out? Your instruments die. is a fire. You're flipping upside down. The weather turns bad. It's all about kind of saving yourself from disaster is 75% of the training. Wow. Yeah, oh, that's terrifying. That's... It's terrifying at first until you realize you can actually do it. And building that confidence is probably one of the most satisfying things. Um, I remember the first time my instructor explained to me that we were going to do an emergency landing um, test, like training test. Uh, and I, I, they were explaining to me what we were going to do next. And it started, you know, step one, I'm going to turn off your engine. Like, excuse me? Yeah, step one, I'm going to turn off your engine. You are then going to find a field to put this plane down without an engine. And when we get really, really close to the field, I'm going to turn on your engine again. Like, but can, can we just do it with the engine? Do we do we have to do it? No, we're going to do it without. <laughs> oh. The engine goes to idle. The plane starts dropping. You now have to figure it out. And that's how we test it. And it was terrifying. By the end of the training, there is no announcement. Uh, you'll be flying along happily. You think you're doing great. And your instructor will simply pull the power on you and go, engine failure. And then you, <laughs> while you're just having fun looking at the scenery, now you have to transition into, uh, okay, great, let's do an emergency checklist and find a place to put this plane down now because we have no engine. Um, so it's 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 kind of exciting, yeah. but then eventually you figure like, ah, I've done this a hundred times, and every time I get close enough to the field that I could probably dump it <laughs> and survive, um, and you get confident with that. So it's it's really satisfying. To know you can handle your own survival. Yeah. Have you come into those situations like outside of training where you had to go through the emergency checklist? And uh, Yes, I, I have. I, I've had a few situations where things happened that were outside of the norm. Like 
being diverted from an airport or um, having to change my expectations of how I was approaching for an, to an airport because something else was happening. But the most memorable one was uh, what's called a go around, which is an aborted landing. So when you come in to land, um, there are many reasons why you might need to abort a landing. Um, I've had a deer run out onto the runway while I was about to land. Um, wow. You have trucks that come onto the runway sometimes because they're not following the instructions they should be following. Or sometimes the previous plane is a bit too slow and they won't clear the runway in time for you to land. So you have to abort that landing. And that's a that's a 10 or 12 step um, checklist, which is going from flying as slow as possible, pointing towards the ground to flying as fast as possible, pointing away from the ground. And you have to make the plane change direction and set everything up. And you also have to make the engine go from idle to full power rather rapidly. And I practiced that procedure hundreds of times. And I was in Buenos Aires approaching for landing. I was cleared for landing on the uh, main runway. It was probably about 800 feet off the runway on final approach, straight in, see it in front of me. There's another plane in front of me landing, which was normal. I was number two, as they say, for the landing. And suddenly a plane came in from the side, which wasn't supposed to be there, cut in front of me and decided to land out of sequence without clearance. And... Mm -hmm. I had a safety pilot next to me who was manning the radios and um, I pointed out this other aircraft and said, you know, traffic, 10 o'clock, we have a problem. And he talked to the air traffic control and turned around to me and said, go around. That was the first time I had heard those two words and it wasn't a test. Mm -hmm. So I um, I went through the the 12 point checklists I've done hundreds of times before and transitioned to a go around. Meanwhile, all I can hear from the right seat is in Spanish screaming profanities at either the air traffic controller or the other pilot or both. I'm not entirely sure. I know that if I had said half those words on the radio in the United States, I'd have my license yanked by the FAA. You're supposed to never use any language outside of the norms. Um, but apparently no cussing on the, on the plane communications. <laughs> yeah. You're not, you're not even supposed to waste words. You have to use very specific words in a very specific sequence because there's a lot of people talking. And if one of them has an emergency, they need, you know, you need to get in and get out quickly off the radios, but yeah. there's, there's a rhythm and a language to it, but certainly, uh, hijo de puta isn't part of the <laughs> vocabulary, which was just one of the gems that came out of the, yeah. So as I was busy doing this, um, checklists and, and transitioning from my go around, I was giggling on the inside as to what I was hearing from the right seats. I was completely uneventful, but it was the first time that I, I, I really had to do it. Like there was no way I could land on that runway because there was now a plane in front of me. Yeah. And, um, so I had to smoothly execute that and it was fine. The training kicked in and I went around did a circuit around the airport and landed afterwards. And then we all laughed about it. Also got a nice YouTube video. I haven't published it, but I did record a video of that landing. Oh, nice. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sometimes a bit reluctant to publish my YouTube videos because, you know, I people don't understand that I've 
you know, I spent $120 for that flight, which I had saved up for a while to, to spend yeah. that. And I didn't, you know, just throw money at it. But they see it, and some people might see a video of me flying a plane and think that, you know, I'm a millionaire or some silly thing like that. So I'm a bit reluctant to publish those, but uh, it's certainly a big part of my life that most people don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is good to kind of be aware of the privilege you have and mm. stuff like that. I mean, I'm constantly trying to kind of being aware of that. And I really don't want to come off as like gloating about like the traveling thing. Like I'm in a unique position to do it very, very inexpensively mm -hmm. uh, because I do live very simply. I'm not doing it as like a kind of flashy thing. There's this, um, I think it was like an, it was like an onion article or a click hole article or something like that. And it's like, you know, free spirited friend explains how she travels the world. Cause she's like rich or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like making fun of like, and I mean, I wrote an article about this recently and I wanted to be very careful to like, not come off as like, Oh yeah, everyone can just do this. Everyone just needs to like get rid of right. all their shit and like hit the road. I mean, it's not practical for everyone. Um, but there's this different level of judgment too. Like, I don't think most people would look at their middle manager at their local bank branch who has, um, you know, a $300,000 house with a mortgage, uh, two cars on a lease, their kids in a, in a not too expensive private school. And once every two years, they go on a vacation to Cabo San Luca <laughs> like that. Yeah. Most people would look at that and say, okay, maybe that's upper middle class. But they wouldn't consider that to be the 1% or the wealthy, or they won't consider their dentist. And the truth is, their dentist or their doctor to be part of the 1% overclass of, of wealthy people who are flaunting their riches. The truth is, they make three times what I make. They just choose to spend it on cars and homes, etc., whereas I choose to spend it on travel. Mm -hmm. uh, and I make sacrifices for that. And also, you know, I choose not to have children, um, yeah, which, which is a big difference, right? Um, but people find it, I think, more easy to to criticize or judge a traveling lifestyle than they would, you know, a pretty normal suburban middle class lifestyle. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it is easy once you've reached a certain level of comfort to kind of fall into that like conspicuous consumption thing uh or mm -hmm. like you're trying to keep up with the joneses kind of thing too you know you buy a house and you, you might feel like you have to do these weird kind of showy status things like buying a bmw oh god yeah like buying a bmw like it's like what I'm going to be doing is, I mean, it's not going to be glamorous, really. In fact, I might make videos about how non-glamorous it is. It's like, this is me eating pork rinds in a parking lot. Right, yeah, behind the scenes <laughs> access. Behind the scenes. Yeah, this you, is me you know taking what I the live bus. On? Like, buy one, get one free soup. Like, <laughs> this right. is me eating soup. <laughs> like, glamour. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and so on, en route to the airport in Buenos Aires, where I rented a plane for $120, 
I took the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have my private limo and driver drop me off. I got on, right. a, on a bus and paid, you know, $2.50 to be on a bus for an hour and a half to get to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's a bit less glamour there than one might assume. I'll make like a gas station charcuterie board of like those little salami and cheese roll ups with some mixed nuts back. <laughs> like, yes, but you can take. I regularly a... eat that show, by the way. Like, but you can go full luxury, terrible. though. I mean, if you if you shop from three different aisles in the gas station, you can construct a gourmet <laughs> meal. Right? Right. So, like, beef jerky on its own isn't a gourmet meal, but no. if you combine it with some packaged cheese and maybe some fruits, you've got hell yeah, yeah. Well, this is pretty like paleo friendly too, you know. <laughs> I've noticed that, like, because I've done a bunch of weird little, uh, like, I've lived a bunch of weird different dietary lifestyles, and I used to be a lot more strict about what I ate, um, and I used to also, I, I, I've never been, like, wealthy or anything, but, like, able to afford to eat better and stuff, and it's, like, it's amazing how resilient your body is, like, when you're super broke. <laughs> like, right. it's amazing the garbage I'm able to put into my body and survive on that, like, a few years ago, I would have been like, there's no way I can eat that. It'll make me sick. Oh, like, I was, like, so afraid of it. It's just, yeah, your body's pretty adaptive. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I do prefer to eat healthy because it does make me feel better. Which is one of the big reasons to learn how to cook because, mm -hmm. you know, part of having cooking as a hobby, <laughs> which I do, is I actually get to eat a hell of a lot better than I would otherwise at a much lower cost. Oh, yeah. Um, and especially if I, you know, go shopping at open air farmers markets and things like that, mm -hmm. buy fresh fresh produce and 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 make things from scratch you you can actually save a lot of money and eat very very well mm -hmm. yeah i used to pre-make a lot of my own food like i would make big batches of stuff and like freeze it or you know mm -hmm. portion it out and stuff like that so i rarely stay somewhere long enough to do that but when i do i i, I do stock up the the fridge yeah. sometimes if you visit an airbnb where i have been you might find some some surprises in the fridge you know some homemade chicken stocks and mm. bolognese or marinara sauce or some other stuff like that just hanging out there waiting for you little presents <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> um how is traveling because you've been traveling for a while how how has it kind of shaped your view of people or kind of like influenced your worldview on things? I mean, I think one of the the big things is seeing how broad the human experience is. You can never say there's no way people live like that because then you travel and you're like, oh, people live like that. But surely they couldn't live like that. And then you travel a bit more and you're like, oh, yep, they do. Human beings are incredibly resilient, and it's as tr it's tragic to see the kind of living conditions that some people live in. Really tragic. I I've traveled to a, a bunch of countries that are um, that have very high rates of of poverty. Places like India, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, um, and it's it's heartbreaking to see. Um, 
the the conditions in which human beings ha- have to endure. The other thing is, you know, you you lose any any idea that some countries' cultures or people are more special than others. I, I never believed in American exceptionalism because I'm not American. I'm an immigrant here. Um, I grew up uh, being taught Greek exceptionalism and mm-hmm. British exceptionalism, and every country has that, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 quite bad here in the states. But I never believed in any of that. And the more you travel, the more you see that you know human behavior is more or less the same everywhere. Most people strive for the same things, fear the same things, care for the same things. What what changes is their level of uh, comfort and their level of uh, security, right? Food security, shelter security, physical security. And you just suddenly realize how good it is to just have security. Because so many people simply don't have any form of of security. And so that's really what I've seen by traveling is that I've been welcomed and treated well by people in every country I've been. Uh, people respond to kindness with kindness. People care for their families over everything else. You know, the same things apply everywhere. Um, and really nationalities and languages, cultures, religions are completely artificial mm-hmm. in, in the end. I know that's a cliche to say, but I've really seen that and experienced that in many different places. And, you know, some some of the nicest people I've uh, met were truly people who had the least. People who have nothing treat you better than, than, than people who have everything. And that's really sad to see. I've been invited... Uh, for example, first time I visited India, I was I, I had a meal in a family home. I was invited literally off the beach to share uh, a meal with a family. And the only reason was one of their kids had kicked their ball into the sea and I jumped in to get it, brought the ball back, and they invited me for dinner. Oh, and I sweet. said, you know, you don't need to invite me for dinner. I just got the ball. Said, but there was no refusing. Uh, <laughs> And I sat down and they took me back to their home and they had nothing. They had literally nothing. And they had two fish and they shared them with me. And I tried to eat a tiny bit and smile a lot and nod and make mmm noises <laughs> and, and really appreciated it. But um, it's just a beautiful, like, I mean, that those kinds of experiences keep happening. And then you meet some of the people who have everything in life and are the stingiest bastards you've ever met. Yeah. <laughs> who will try to uh, cheat you out of <laughs> what you have just to keep score. It's uh, it's a bit it's a bit upsetting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I've yet to meet a well-traveled white nationalist. You know, <laughs> if you think America's the greatest country in the world, like, uh, have you been to other? places i mean like i i I just haven't you know seen a lot of people like that and it does kind of i mean i haven't traveled much outside of the country i've only gone to mexico um but it's always something i've wanted to explore more and i again i'm just very grateful to basically won the location lottery Mm -hmm. you know i was born in the u.s um you know i've gone through rough times but not nearly as bad as 
people in much of the world. So, yeah, I mean, I just want to keep that, you know, kind of in perspective. Like, there, there's a whole other world out there um, to explore. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're born in this country, you have it pretty, pretty awesome compared to... Oh, you're already the 1%. Right, yeah. Just by being... Well, actually, it's the you're in the 5% just by being here. And if you don't... If you're not born in the in the poorest parts of America, you're automatically in the 1% of human population. Mm -hmm. And you haven't done anything to achieve that. That's not an achievement. That's the starting line. (laughs) It's a total accident. Like, no one's here on purpose, you know. Or no one... What is it? It's like a Rick and Morty quote. Like, no one exists on purpose. Nothing happens for a reason. Everything happens for no reason. Everything happens for no reason. Exactly. That's one of my favorite quotes, yeah. Yes. (laughs) I hate the opposite one. Oh, it's one of my least favorite things ever. I mean, it's what a, what a weirdly. I mean, if someone says it to me, like I know that their intentions aren't necessarily bad, and I know it's a platitude that they probably didn't really think through, you know. So I can't be like, I'm not going to take personal offense to it, but it is, you know, somewhat insulting to me. It's like, really, some asshole is like orchestrating all of this bullshit in my life for what? For shits and giggles? Like, I would never do that, given any. <laughs> any kind of power <laughs> over other people. Like I would never put someone through my fucked up four dimensional chess game, but, <laughs> but no, it's, I mean, I, I find it, I don't know, liberating that things are chaotic. So like, yeah. you don't have a lot of control. So I guess that's a part of this too, is like seeding people trying who's... to micromanage and control my own life by realizing like, I don't really have control over, what's happened especially the last few years and i mean i can i can control my reactions to things and i can you know control some factors in my life but i mean things really are freewheeling (laughs) yeah chaos it's a terrifying yet a much simpler explanation for life Mm -hmm. that removes a lot of craziness turns out you know when the person who tells you everything happens for a reason is thinks that the universe is judging or controlling or whatever. And really the only test you have to pass is to not respond to that stupid platitude (laughs) 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 and and to smile and say, thank you. You're probably right. (laughs) That's the test. You pass it. But yeah, like whatever makes you happy, if that, because that does, I can, you know, I can understand why it brings people comfort, you know, because they do want to be in control. Like, yeah, I think, you know, people want to be in control of things in various ways. And if that makes you feel better about things, then by all means, believe that it's, you know, I mean, it's arguable whether or not it's hurting anyone. Like you believe something like that on a massive scale and run into some serious problems. Oh, yeah. On a massive scale, Manichaean philosophy of good versus evil is absolutely toxic in any culture. But, uh... Well, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other <laughs> conversation. Whole other, that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> but, um, well, I guess you're also known for this Bitcoin thing. Yes. Do you want to mention it for a second? Okay. I mean, there might be people who signed up and are listening to this and really want to hear me talk about 
Bitcoin. So it's such a huge topic. Yeah. Okay. Let, let me try it. One okay. second. All right. Bitcoin. There. How was that? Wow. Perfect. Yeah. That mind fucking blown. I think that's enough for this episode. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Great. Well, perfect. Well, I, I think we covered a lot in this episode. Where can people find your work and keep up with all the cool stuff you're doing? Um, I post a lot on uh, Twitter and I have a YouTube channel. Uh, both of those under um, A-A-N-T-O-N-O-P, Antonop. Um, and, uh, you know, people can find me quite easily on Google. There's only one other Andreas and Bitcoin. So if you type Andreas and Bitcoin, my annoying face comes up. (laughs) Can't really avoid it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, check out his awesome stuff. Um, he's all over the internets, (laughs) (laughs) mostly known for Bitcoin, but also a bunch of other cool stuff. So this has been Iconosass, and you can send questions and complaints to Iconosass at gmail.com, and you can also follow me on Patreon, where I've added some cool new rewards too, so you should go check that out. All right.